This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by listeners like you. Thanks for using the Tome's Amazon and DMs Guild affiliate links and our wonderful patrons over at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for January 2020. Tome's a D&D news reviews and interview show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm your co-host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, spoilers be damned, in full book club style. And our book this time around is The Quest to the Uncharted Lands by Jelly Johnson. In the next episode, we will be reading, since it was recommended by a patron, Pawn of Prophecy by David Eddings. New to all of us. Uh, Eric, you've read a little bit of David Eddings, but not this one, right? That is correct. Briefly, long time ago. Yeah, and I think I may have maybe seen, read some David Eddings back in like, I don't know, elementary, middle school age. Uh, I I think I have some over on the bookshelf, but I don't, don't know that I ever actually cracked them open. So this will be a good experience for all of us. And speaking of all of us, with us, as always, is Eric Paquette. Hey, Eric! Hello, bonjour! Bonjour! Uh, so, the book we're discussing today, The Quest of the Uncharted Lands, is the third and final, question mark, question mark, book in the Solace series that Jelly Johnson wrote after her run of Forgotten Realm novels came to an end. There are three books that take place in sequential order and build upon each other, but they don't necessarily share characters or have a single story that they're telling it's also worth noting to our listeners that we at the tome show have been streaming many of our episode recordings at twitch.tv slash tome show the easiest way to get notified is to follow us on twitch or on twitter everything we stream will eventually be edited and released as a podcast though so don't worry if streaming isn't your thing Before we dig into this book, I want to say thank you to all of our patrons who support us at patreon.com slash the Tome Show. A big shout out goes out to the patrons who support us and help us pay the bills that make the show possible. Special thanks goes out to Doug Palmer, Jill Sanders, Leonard Pelche, and new patron Jared Rasher. Thanks for your support and for being the best darn patrons ever. Now, on to the book. Let's have a chat about the quest to the uncharted lands. Uh, Who wants to start off by telling us a little bit about what this book is about? I can go. It's the story of the the Iron Glory, which is a airship that is heading from, well, from the, I don't remember the the name of the Marrow Kingdoms and Dragonfight Territories towards across the mountains into the uncharted lands. But more specifically, it follows three uh, three uh, stowaways on the ship. Two that we follow mostly, which is uh, Stella Glass and Cyrus. Yeah. Stella comes Stella comes from the Mirror Kingdom. Is it Mirror Kingdom where she comes from? Maybe. I don't know that it was particularly... It wasn't particularly important, because part of the whole point of the Iron Glory was that this was an opportunity for the two usually competing Kingdom. kingdoms to work together uh, and try to bring some yeah. unity to their half of the continent. But yeah, they... 
with Stella stowaway on it because her parents were on the ship. They were one of the main, they were both scientists, both doctors on the ship to go. So that she didn't want to be left alone from her, uh, from her, from her family. Mm-hmm. So she stowed away on it. Quickly found Cyrus, who uh, comes from the uncharted lands. Mm-hmm. And yeah. go ahead. I was gonna say so. There's this whole thing where the people from this kingdom, from these kingdoms, say like, "Oh, there's these uncharted lands. We know nothing about it." And blah blah blah. But it turns out that people from the uncharted lands had been coming to meet them and talking to them. And they just never knew it, and that's right. what Cyrus comes from. I it just, it just so it just so happens that that Cyrus and the other people from the Uncharted Lands look like, but are not human, uh, and so they just sort of show up and blend in and, and you know investigate things. During the uh, the story, we found out that there is a third stowaway, a saboteur, who uh, have been trying to sab- sabotage the plan to get through to uh, head towards the uh, uncharted lands by crashing the ship. Uh, we've found later on it is known as the faceless one because he has the ability to be able to shape shift into any other persons. Uh, and they all, we found out that he was one of the explorers that we found in the future that came from the Uncharted Lands to come in, but we will find out and we find out at the end that he abandoned the original goal of peace and all that because he saw the the war that happened in the big war that used most that the previous two books talked about mm-hmm. between the Dragonfly characters and the Mirror Kingdom. And thus he figured that them going to the Uncharted Lands will bring more that there too. Right. So he was trying to stop that. Uh, so, and one thing I'm thinking about as, um, you know, thinking about the book and stuff, it kind of reminds me of Star Trek, but instead of being the Star Trek crew, you're one of the planets that they happen to, to come on. Yeah. <laughs> um, kind of, yeah. Um, yeah. Because yeah. Uh, the, the folks from the Uncharted Lands in some ways are way more advanced right. than the people here, right? They're the ones that have the, the, the ship technology to be able to go across these mountains. Uh, they have magic and being well, able to be a doppelganger and stuff like that. They have kind of sort of magic. It, it kind of falls into the, to that realm of uh, sufficiently advanced technology appearing as magic, right? Because it, yeah. it, it seems to be this this strange, important, very important to them sort of metal or whatever that allows them to do a lot of the fantastic things that they do. And they're studying it and don't entirely understand it, but they're also not pretending it's magic. They're looking at it as, oh, we don't understand this stuff very well. We figured out how to use it to do some crazy things. But, you know, we may not understand it, but we're, we're studying it, right? They're not treating it like it's magic. Yeah. But we also find out that those from the trailer, like Cyrus, they are part machine. They're not, so they're cyborg, sort of. From sort a, of. But in a magical sense. And thus, that's why, how they are different from humans 
from the yeah, the other uh, lands of Solas. Yeah, and, and it's weird because they're, you know, we, usually you talk about somebody who's a cyborg and there's this idea that like they were a person and they had machines grafted onto them and so they're partially machines or whatever. But these people, the Olorans, which are the people from the the Uncharted Lands, um, they're not, it's not really like that. It's not like they were turned into cyborgs. They're just sort of born as human-machine hybrid people. That's just sort of the way they are. It's just a different physiology. It's just that part of that physiology happens to be mechanics and circuitry. Right. And it sounds kind of like an extrapolation of the whole mitochondria thing, because there was a belief at one point that mitochondria were separate organisms that kind of created this thing within us. Mm. Right. Yeah, no, and... and it's an interesting, I mean, um, Jalee Johnson is, if, if anything, like, comes up, came up with some really creative things in this series, right? You know, at first we, we sort of discovered um, the different races of the Marrow Kingdoms and the Dragonfly Territories in the, the uh, was it the first book we met uh, a Camelin? Uh, which uh, are the people who can like turn into dragons. They can shape change into dragons, but otherwise basically look like people. And then we sort of discovered, oh yeah, there's also these people called Sarnans out there that are, they've got antennas and they're, they're psychic and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we've never really had one as a major character. So we don't know a lot about the Sarnans uh, in too much regard, but this book featured one as like, what was, what was she, the first mate? Uh, of the Iron Glory. So we got to learn a little bit more about them. Um, And yeah, and so you've got these stowaways, right? And I think this is, you know, and and we, as we do, we've we've jaunted around a little bit uh, through things, but Cyrus and Stella meet up, um, discover their stowaways, kind of come into conflict for a bit because they don't trust each other for a while. And then, you know, as as happens... uh, with these kinds of stories end up becoming the best of friends, right? And that's when she learns about him being partially machine. And um, he's got this ability where he can like shield and protect the ship. And so he's trying to do that to make sure the ship gets, gets where it's going so he can get home. Um, so yeah. And, and I'm curious, like are the first two Olerons we meet are Cyrus who has this ability to create, shields to protect things um and the faceless one who has the ability to shape change and change his appearance and it gives the impression that like do all olorans have powers of some sort Uh, are there like is there set powers that you know and and they're sort of that's sort of their racial divide like um there's a lot of this this book raises a lot of questions well, Cyrus does talk about that because it is asked of Elrond, and he says that not all Alarans mm-hmm. have powers. Like his parents don't have any That's special true. powers. But yeah, so there's just some have developed powers, but which Cyrus happens to be one of them. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's true. Yeah, you're right. So it's interesting. Um, you know, and I mentioned that this 
this book raises a lot of questions. So first, Cyrus is like shielding the um, the engine room and trying to protect it from from prepare it for. He knows that halfway across the mountain range that separates the uncharted lands from the Marrow Kingdoms and the Dragonfly territories, um, there's this massive storm that just perpetually sits on the border. And he's like, well, the, the, the ship is not going to be able to get through. He's like, I got myself in on the construction team and weaved some of this special, uh, almost magical metal that we have from the Uncharted Lands into the big gas balloon because it's that kind of airship um, to make sure that it would be a little bit protected. But I'm, I need to use my powers to really shield the ship to get it through the storm or else I don't think it's going to make it. Um, yeah. And just real quick, when I said magic earlier, I was talking about the powers, not the metal part. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, and and even that, I guess we don't we don't know, really know where that comes from, do we? It's 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 sort of right. like the, it's so sort it's, of like the Camelins and the Sarnins, right? They have weird powers too that we don't understand. Wait, you were saying? I, I was just saying that it's kind of like the Camelins and the Sarnins. They have weird powers that we don't understand as well, so. Right, right, right. Um, so, But yeah. yeah, so Cyrus is trying to get them through that storm. Mm-hmm. Um, but before they even get to that, there's the thing where the birds start attacking them. Mm. When they yes. first start taking off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the bird, there's, um, there's a horde of, or a flock of birds. With, like, razor-sharp beaks, so they're worried that it's going to get the balloon. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they have to try to... And that's when they first starting... Like, they have to do this just pretty much at the moment they meet, right? Pretty quick, yeah. Like, not much long after. They're not... They don't trust each other yet. She's afraid that... But they have to trust that at this exact moment, they're aligned in their goals. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And, And it's a little bit, like... First of all, that's when they first figure out that there's a saboteur because they're like, who would have attracted these clearly deadly creatures that could be seen from miles away? Somebody specifically did something to bring them here. So that's when they first start getting a hint that there's a saboteur. They then, like Stella climbs out the window dangling off the side of this airship, you know, however many feet over the top of the, the mountains and then like sets off fireworks to attract the birds and get them away from the, the gas bag and the airship, um, which is fine and clever and, and, and brave and all that kind of stuff, right? And part of me wonders, like, how is it at that point nobody on the ship is like, hey, who set off the fireworks? Like, why didn't they start looking for saboteurs or her or whoever set off the fireworks at that point, right? Um, right. But they didn't. And then we... And then there were several other sort of instances of attempted sabotage. There was setting fire to the, to the was basically the janitor's closet uh, at one point, and um, I'm trying to remember. There might have been a few other things like that, like that as well. But Stella was she had borrowed Cyrus's suit that allows them to basically be invisible if they move real slowly. Um, and so she was sort of on the creep out looking for. Um, the saboteur trying to figure out who it was. Um, and then it all sort of comes to a head as they're going through the storm, right? 
Um, everybody goes below decks to, for shelter, and they're like, this is the perfect chance to get out uh, and shield the ship to make sure it gets through. But Cyrus needs to be like up in the crow's nest. And so Cyrus is up in the crow's nest. Stella insists on going with to, to protect him. Uh, and then the faceless man shows up with his uh, laz lazural rod, which is some sort of special weapon they have over in the Uncharted Lands that can really mess up Olerons. Yeah, it's the living light. Yeah. Which can affect Olerons a lot. Don't think it could affect that much for humans, but they weren't too sure. Well, it it gave Stella a pretty nasty blister and injured her uh, pretty well. Uh, but oh. but you get the impression with the uh, Olerons, it, it it does the physical damage that it does to humans, but it also like shuts down their machinery if it's set to a, a high enough setting. So it's particularly hey. problematic for them. So the fees are set to kill. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think during the Christmas part, we learned about it before then. And it's been about two months since I read it. So there's some details I'm a little fuzzy on. But there's something about touching Cyrus while he's using his powers. Right. Um, that if she does that, that uh, interrupts things or at least doesn't it, doesn't it give her a glimpse into his mind, basically? Well, right. So he tells her, don't touch me. Whatever you do, don't touch me. It's going to mess things up. Um, uh, and, then, and then we're in trouble, right? And then it turns out that wasn't really what was going on, right? Um, the re the at least the impression I got was that it wasn't an issue of it's going to mess things up. It was an issue of uh, him using that as an excuse because he sort of has to open himself up and it gave her a glimpse into sort of his mind, right? And so that's the impression I got was why he was making excuses to like, don't touch me, it'll mess it up. But it was really like, don't touch me because I don't want you to see all my secrets. Hey. But ultimately, the she, in order to protect him, because they were he was going to like go bar barreling over the side of the crow's nest, she had to grab him um, and save him from the the faceless man, and in the process of doing so, learned a bunch of these secrets. And that's when we sort of got the back backstory of Cyrus. He was part of this expedition. They came over. Um, a th what was it? Um, it was something like his mentor or whatever was uh like left him behind in order to escape uh and then left him a note saying hey sorry we couldn't wait but we had to get out of here sort of a real look after him myself sort of thing and abandon him um in the dragonfly territories marrow kingdom one of those two um and and so this is then he's been working ever since to try to figure out how to get back. He's left family and, and uh, people behind he wants to get back home to. Yeah, because we also find out that he didn't leave on good terms with his parents because they didn't really want him to go. And right. So he decided to go anyway. Yeah. So he feels terrible about that. Yeah. And he feels also that probably they think he's dead there. He's no longer. That's why he hasn't come back. Well, and the expedition came back without him, right? So um, yeah. one could guess, one could imagine that they probably claimed he was dead or at least disappeared. So he has to be assumed dead, right? 
which is which is kind of an interesting um, echo to the fact that Stella, you know, was supposed to stay with her. I think it was mm. her grandparents, and she decided to run away and, and and do this so that she could be near her parents. Right. Absolutely. They, they, they both have very similar goals in terms of wanting to get back to or stay with their parents, who they were for whatever reason separated from. Or I guess Stella never managed to get separated from them. She (laughs) worked it out that she was there the whole time, but she didn't see him for a a week or two. Yeah. For most of the book, she is separate from her parents because she's stowaway. She doesn't want to be found in Mm -hmm. a lot, even though she's there. Yeah. So. Yeah. And that does take, the, the book does like, it does as books tend to do, like the pacing's not even, is it? Like you spend a good two thirds of the book just sort of establishing Stella and Cyrus and their relationship and the beginnings of them hunting for the saboteur and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but then once the that whole scene with the storm hits, that's really like a big climax moment. Um, and they are found out, right? They, they're discovered. Um, and she gets to... Right. They're like, oh, well, your parents are here. We know who you are. They let her basically go, but they take Cyrus prisoner. And the faceless man is running around wearing other faces, more or less framing him for as being the saboteur. Uh, and so, yeah, then it, so then then it becomes a, a story of how do we convince the rest of the ship that Cyrus is not the saboteur uh, and that there's still a saboteur out there trying to kill us all. Who can, by the way, take the face of any person, right, or any creature? So, yeah. not, so not that you would ever. And, and and there's there's a lot of like, well, I can't tell them that this person can change their face. They'll never believe me. That sounds crazy. And I'm like, what? Tell the first mate who can read your mind that there's a person who can change their face, or maybe you know, and who have a crew full of people that turn into dragons. Like this doesn't sound so horribly <laughs> unbelievable, but <laughs> well, yeah. There's a part of that, but there's also the part that she doesn't know. Maybe she's telling the person who is the faceless one who could look like That's anybody. That's true. Yeah, and it does take them a while to figure out that the faceless ones, because the faceless one from the from the book is one of many faceless ones, we're told, uh, on that side of the mountains. Um, but the trick that they that she eventually discovers from from talking to Cyrus about it is that they always have a tell. There's always one thing about them that they can't change. Uh, and in this case, he can't change his eyes, and they're always bloodshot. Um, and so it's just an issue of run around and accuse every single person with bloodshot eyes on this very stressful place where they've been not getting much sleep that they must be a saboteur, right? Simple. <laughs> yeah. Simple. <laughs> and with um, Cyrus in prison, it becomes easier for the saboteur to then sabotage the ship. Right. And, and there's a few more instances with the saboteur. Like the saboteur uh, and Stella run afoul of each other and she almost gets flung over the edge of the, the airship and she screams and yells and the people come to her help and the saboteur disappears. Um, and then there's then she's start, starting to think through things. It's like, well, what's, like we're past the mountains now. We're getting into the uncharted lands. The saboteur hasn't tried to sabotage anything for a while. What's going on? What are they going to do? 
And eventually she figures, oh, he's going to go after Cyrus. That's step one. You have to get rid of Cyrus in order for the sabotage to, to be successful. Uh, and so she decides, I'll just hang out there and wait until he shows up and we'll be ready for him. Uh, and so she teams and she works with mom and dad and brings dad along while mom is taking care of some other things. And um, dad is supposed to cause a distraction and all these things go down and she runs in and then discovers that actually the dad that she's been working with this whole time is the faceless man who has uh, knocked dad unconscious in the bathroom or whatever. Um, and they go after Cyrus and, and they're... Um, they chase him away because other people show up to help. Uh, the captain and, and the first mate and some other crew members show up to help. Uh, and the faceless man disappears and whatever. But also it, they make it or the faceless man makes it clear that like it's too late. It doesn't matter anyway. The sabotage is already done. It was already set up and there's nothing you can do about it. Eric, you were going to say something? Well, the sabotage, from what I recall, is the in the furnace room, managed to blow it up and dust right. the ship, the Iron Glory, at that point, crashes. Right, yeah. No, he, he, did, he did something to one of the boilers or whatever so that it was slowly building up pressure and would eventually explode. Uh, and, and But by then, they managed to run down and try to stop it. Uh, they're not able to stop it, but Cyrus is there with them and uses his power to sort of shield... Um, most of the ship and the and the crew from the explosion. So you almost get the impression like this airship plummeted out of the sky and and crash landed in unfamiliar territory. And I don't think anybody ends up dead. Everybody survives the crash, right? You're not yeah, sure. Nobody. For, nobody uh, well, yeah, you're not sure. Yeah, nobody dies. No. Yeah. But. They are, there are several injuries, including Cyrus. Uh, but the Iron Glory expedition is looks to be over. Right. Uh, and Cyrus is so... Like, he's not... It's not so much his injuries as it is he used so much of his own personal energy to set up that shield and save the ship and its crew um, that uh, it looks like he's going to die. And so... He's sitting in the, the, the med bay, if you will. Um, and they're like, well, we don't, like, we don't even know what his physiology is. There's nothing we can do here. And Stella insists she's going for help. She remembers he had talked to her uh, that once they're on the other side of the mountains, they're going to be really close to the capital city. Uh, what was it? Was it called Koval? Am I remembering that right? Koval. Yeah. So they're going to be really close to the capital city. And she's like, maybe I can get there, get help, get back. She tells him of the plan. He's like, no, no, no. She's like, no, I'm going, whether you help me or not. And he's like, yeah, you probably are, <laughs> you know, because that's how you roll. Um, uh, and so he gave her a map and she gave her instructions. Uh, this is the person you want to find. This is their address where, when you get to the town. Here's some, you know, she teaches her some of the language and uh, records a little bit. They have a little uh, messenger beetle device that they send back and forth with messages and so she recorded some of the language on there so she could practice it and learn it um uh and so then she takes off she runs off to koval to to find the tinker which is um cyrus's mentor or whatever from before the expedition 
I'm giving you a chance to jump in. So <laughs> I talk, I'm talking a lot. <laughs> I may have finished the yeah, book more takes... recently of everybody though. So I don't know if my recall is more fresh. Well, and, and there, it doesn't take, it takes a little bit of time, but it doesn't take too long for her to get there and even to find the tinkerer. But she starts sending messages back and forth a little bit too, right? Yeah. Yes. And that's when she realizes Cyrus has been captured again by the... Uh, the faceless man has yeah. intercepted the message. Yeah, in fact, she's real close. Um, like, she's like, she can see the city. And she's in, like, the outskirts and sees, like, the farms and stuff around it. And then gets the, the beetle back and it's the faceless man saying, hey, I got everybody. And if you want your parents and Cyrus to survive, come back now. Like, don't come, don't bring help, just immediately return, Right. Right. And she decides to go for it anyway to go see the tinkerer um, and then ends up at his estate, which seems like a little bit outside the city or it's like an interesting thing because it gave the impression that there was a lot of land, yeah, not I, a ton of land. I felt like because I thought it was like his estate was near or just like right across the river, which was in the middle of the city. I, I, I was under the impression he was more towards the middle of the city, but just had a large estate. Yeah, and it was like it was hard because she has to go through all that the city, and she does. But she gets to the gate. There's no clear way to get in, right. um, so she ends up deciding to climb the wall. And uh, in, as in often the, in happens, the invisibility suit, right <laughs> in the invisibility suit, but in a totally foreign place. And as often happens when you decide to climb a rich person's estate's wall there are dogs sort of this case this case there are wolves yeah yeah giant metal hounds have been released yes robotic wolves that come in and try to get her the tinker notices that calls off tries to ascertain who she is but quickly realizes that she is human right Oh, and, and also and, that she and, is using And he recognized it almost immediately. Like, he immediately recognized that she was human. He also um, tells her, like, oh, no, I saw you climbing over the wall. Don't think I couldn't see you if, uh, see the signs of the invisibility clouds. I've been studying this stuff for years. Yeah. Yeah. He probably built this. And weren't, human, weren't, like, so, humans like her one of the things he was trying to study? Yeah, Specifically, no, yeah. too? And, Right, he's been studying, he studying that, and he's noticed how fluid she is. Right, in her movement. When she was That's running from the wolves, he's like, "Yeah, Olorons don't really run quite so fluidly." So I figure you must be a one hundred percent flesh and blood human over here. And so, unsurprisingly, he agrees to help her. <laughs> right. Oh, and, and he's one of those weird, eccentric sort of... And he's called the Tinker. That's, that's the only name we have for him. And he's everything you expect from somebody who's a... a, a don, he's he's, the, he's the, the mad wizard. The eccentric mad wizard of the story, right? He's... Uh, he's uh, what's the Wizard of Oz. He's the Wizard of Oz. Only not so fake. Like, he's, he's um, Fizbin from the last book we read, right? Um, and he's like, yeah, I can totally fix Cyrus. Let's go. Get in my weird flying gyroscope thing. Let me gather up my, my medical bag. And then they, they fly back to the Iron Glory. The, the metal wolves are running along underneath them the entire way so that they have some, some help. And he sends word out to, um, 
basically the queen, I forget the name uh, that they use, the title they use for the queen, but basically sends a word out to the queen, like, of what's going on, you know, send help. Yolanda? The, uh, yeah, the, uh, the Elegant or uh, Elegant. Yeah. Elegant. L-A-G-N-T. Elegant. Without an audiobook version this time, I, I have to, we, <laughs> we just have to um, make up our own pronunciation of fantasy names, right? Uh, so the Tinker and Stella and the wolves get back and they, they run into people. They're starting to, the, the survivors or, you know, the injured or whatever are starting to gather outside of the airship in tents. He leaves the wolf behind just in case. Uh, they go and they find Cyrus. He's in the wreckage of the medical uh, room. Um, uh, and so the, and then they go down to the cargo hold, figuring that must be where they're hiding because that's a good place to hide because that's where we were all hiding when we were stowaways, right? <laughs> uh, so obviously that's the best place to hide anywhere on the ship it's, is the place that we figured to hide a long time ago when we were doing this um, so yeah so they, they head on down to the cargo bay they find him there they 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 sick the was it they sick the wolves on him or whatever I, I, I for, honestly kind of forget how he was defeated it was kind of the final defeat of the saboteur was kind of anticlimactic wasn't it it was. It was very quick and like, oh, wait, he's defeated now? And well, and didn't it quite was, grasp. I think, and it was logical. But I think it was the wolves. I was. Yeah, it, it made sense. Like, the guy had no chance. Yeah. He wasn't any more powerful or whatever than anybody else when confronted physically. He was overwhelmed, right? That wasn't his shtick. His shtick was manipulation and hiding in shadows and whatever. Um, so once he was confronted by an overwhelming force, then, oh, that, that's the end of that, right? He's, he's done. Um, so yeah, so, uh, and then from there, then the, the Oligon's fleet of airships shows up and, uh, <laughs> you know, takes him into custody and they all make friends and the end, right? That's more or less where it wraps up. Also, uh, Cyrus and Stella managed to get into visit this actual... City of Cobol. Yes. Well, and you almost get the... I mean, they became very good friends, but you yes. almost get the impression that they became... that they're love interests as much as anything. Yeah. Am I, am I imagining that, or is that true? I got that impression, too, that they were developing more of a more intimate relationship, or there's potential for develop, them right. developing it. Intimate relationship in the future. I have I have expected the epilogue to be like, and then ten years later they were married and living in Koval and happy and, and ambassadors to <laughs> between the two sides of the mountains or whatever, you know? So. Except of course that that as we I think we discussed before recording, we feel like this is maybe the final book of the series, but wasn't intended to be. So if it wasn't intended to be the final book, she probably didn't want to jump way ahead in time um in the epilogue because yeah. you know there's yeah. still more of that story to tell you know yeah so and and i did think it oh go ahead i was gonna say i did think it was kind of cute slash funny when uh i think her, wasn't it her mom brought up like hey you oh, seem to be interested yes. oh yeah, yeah and she's like no mom no <laughs> <laughs> yeah 
They're very teenagers. Her mom tries to trick her about talking to about Cyrus, and she then figures that out. Like, wait, hold on, my mom. Okay, yeah, maybe cute. So it was it was well. Yeah, it was, it was cute. A very cute scene. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was. Wow. Yeah. And and I liked, uh, sort of as an aside to the actual story, it's interesting. This whole series is interesting in that Jaleed Johnson keeps telling stories in the same world. They absolutely, like, build on each other, but with completely different characters that... that don't know know each other. It's usually several years in between, uh, and things continue to progress. Huh. Like they're not. It's not a sequential story, but they're individual oh. stories that take place in the. It's like she's doing a shared world, like the Forgotten Realms, but just with one author. You know, yeah. who collaborates really well with I, herself. I, <laughs> yeah, I did. I did notice in this one that they do mention about stuff that happened in the previous book. Like there's the train, a 401 that they, that mm-hmm. I believe Cyrus went on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was from the, the first book. One of the, yeah. And one of the first exhibitions from the alternative lands that were sent out were not Olaren's, but a device. And the, which basically was the, that ship in the secret of solace, which right. is got, and he, me, he mentioned that they did. The, that this one, when it came back, it had a good attraction to two young kids, a boy and a girl, which was, right. yeah, it's a secret of solace. So, right. Well, so which, which, starts, which starts to answer some of the questions. Like, that's one of, one of the things she does in these books. Like, you never quite feel like the story's over at the end of any of these books. And you hope that the next book will sort of let you know what happened and they never really do, but they kind of do. Like we knew that the, the kids got on the ship and went back to the uncharted lands with that shit, that unmanned ship. Right. Um, and they said that, you know, that they arrived or whatever. Okay. So where are they? Like what's going on with them? You know, um, and you also, I also got the impression, not only was the four, was it the four one mentioned the train. Um, but I got the, that whole story, Mark of the Dragonfly, was about this machine girl with no memory of who she was and where she came from. And I want, I'm assuming that she was actually an Oleron who lost her memory uh, for whatever reason and ended up on, on you know, as, from one of the expeditions or something. Although this was pre-manned expeditions, maybe. We don't know how long that ship was, was buried uh, from Seekers of Solace, do we? So anyway, I was assuming that she is uh, an Oleron as well. So we're actually getting some answers to these. Now, we don't know what happened to her specifically, but now we kind of have an idea of who she is and how she got there, maybe, you know? So it's interesting to see how uh, Julie Johnson is, is sort of building this lore and answering some of those questions without actually directly addressing those questions. Um, and, and I think this one sets up equal questions. Like, okay, so what's going to happen now between the humans and the Olerons? And, and is Stella and, are, are Stella and Cyrus sort of in, instrumental in that? There's also the mystery of the storm. Like Cyrus explicitly calls out, yeah, there's always a storm here. It's always really bad. It never moves. We don't know why. There's even talk and conspiracy theories that there are people living under the mountains who want to keep us separated that, that generate the storm, storm intentionally to keep people away. All right. Uh, and all of that's like, oh, 
that's you've laid out a whole bunch of stuff that needs to be explored. Like within this book, it just creates a challenge, but like that's a whole setting. That's a whole bit of setting lore that really needs answering. And now I'm worried we're never going to see an answer, right? This is the, the only of the three books that never got an audio book. Um, and, and my understanding from um, tweeting with uh, Julie was that they're never going to make one. Uh, and she's started writing a new series as well. So I'm, I'm guessing maybe the sales weren't good enough or what for the rest of the series. I know the first one did well. Um, but maybe the rest of the other two didn't do well enough and there maybe we're done with the the solace series uh, and I'm kind of sad about it like it's a it's a weird and interesting and unique but in somehow relatable world and with all the questions that they keep asking and you know, the new like even in the end of quest you know, as you said, well, what happened between the humans and the Lara and all that? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a great setup for role-playing games. We can, we can probably do a D&D campaign on that or another game s- mm-hmm. system for it. So it, uh, the World of Celeste is rich in all these three books of elements that you can go and have fun and play with it. Um, it's a shame that if we don't get in more books in the series, because I want to Oh, but I also want to play in that sort of setting. Right. Well, and, and there's a lot of, like, part of me wants to, it's ironic because the Eberron book is a setting book, but there's a lot of stuff from the Eberron book that you can just sort of rip out and put into this world and kind of make it work. You know? Um, Cyrus is an, a, a warforged sorcerer. The Faceless Man is a changeling. You know? Uh, you know, we have airships and we have trains. Uh, all of this is stuff that we get from from Eberron. You know, dragon shards and what is it, what is the metal? Elithium are, are kind of functionally the same kind of thing, right? Um, you could absolutely you, you make a D and D campaign in this in this world, um, and I'd be interested to see it happen too. I just wish we had more of the the setting to explore because the way she sort of slowly unfolds the world. Um, means that we've only got like a seedling to start with and we'd have to flesh out the rest of it on our own, I guess. And I think stealing the uh, storm idea that somebody's creating the storm to keep them apart or to hide themselves is like something you can definitely do as well. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's definitely rich for you because I know we usually want to say like, what is this book? How is how this book be useful to people who are playing D&D? And that's definitely a lot of those things. It's yeah. taking things that are very common but giving them a twist that makes Mm it i think fresh uh in terms of particularly bringing into a game yeah and i think it's also interesting to think about like this this world shows like there is a certain level of technological advancement but i don't know that you could i could equate the technological advancement of this world to any time period of actual earth history you know like they're they have steam powered things but they're also talking about being familiar with circuitry and you know it's not like there's no so far as i remember there's no like guns or anything like that right um so it's all it, it but it all seems to work in this setting like things just sort of develop differently here 
Um, so it's interesting to think creatively, you know, get out of the headspace of, well, D&D is, is pseudo medieval fantasy, right? Um, because clearly fantasy worlds don't have to be that at all. Uh, and this is a, a really interesting example of that. Yeah. Well, even in this book, like for the Olarans, they are good in machines, but they also mentioned that they're not that good in medicine compared to the humans who are their medical technology is, is high. So right. you know, they, they have a basis for, for trade or exchange of ideas to basically make it work. Mm-hmm. So. so they just pick different paths in the civilization build process. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they absolutely did. All right. So we've talked through the book. We've talked through some of our, our ideas and our thoughts. Uh, any other sort of last thoughts that anybody wants to share uh, before we wrap this up? Well, another thing for RPGs, for the, the story itself, it could sort of feel like a railroad because literally they were just stuck on this airship and they can't, that's the, mm-hmm. the path that's going. And, but... It, it, there's lots of work in there and all that that you can play. And also the book with the crash shows how to possibly take a, a failure in the game. Hmm. Oh, they failed to save, save the ship to completely work, but they get to continue the story, which is also a useful tool to, to use for role-playing games where, okay, what is the next in the story after Oh, we just rolled a one on saving the ship. Right. <laughs> it's going down. It's going down. What can we do now? Right. Oh, wait. Let's save everyone, and then we'll figure out what to do next. Right. That just so. gives us a new angle on the story. Yeah. And, and, and I don't know yeah. that I agree that it's a, it's a railroad type of story. Um, because it's not like the characters were forced necessarily to always go from from plot point A to plot point. Like sometimes things happen, right? But that happens in a in a sandbox yeah. story too. The events occur. Um, yeah. It's just, I think it, I I feel like it's a sandbox story, or it could be a sandbox sort of story, but it's a really small sandbox because you're on the airship and there's no way off of it, right? So That's it's true. just a really small yeah, sandbox like, story. Okay. Yeah. There's a moving sandbox within the setting. Right. So. Absolutely. Tracy, and, and last with time-based event. Oh, and I'm going to say that with the time-based events, right, that they might not even know about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, talking about the storm and, you know, a couple other things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. That's all, right. all I got. All right. Then I'm going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode. So, it's time to say goodbye. We want to say thanks to all of our patrons once again at patreon.com slash the tome show. And to those of you who shop at Amazon and DMs Guild using our affiliate links at thetomeshow.com. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email at thetomeshow at gmail.com and call our biz line. That's 919-BIZ-TOME, 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. You can contact me. Uh, Tracy at Sarah Dark Magic on Twitter and SarahDarkMagic.com. You can find Jeff at Squatch uh, at S Q U A C H and at The Tone Show on Twitter. And Eric is at Eric Impact. You can watch our stream of our episode recordings 
at twitch.tv slash tomeshow or watch the video after the fact on the Tome Show's YouTube channel. Show notes and other great shows are at thetomeshow.com. You know, it occurred to me that in terms of streaming, if we wanted people to really uh, have an opportunity to watch, we should probably not record and schedule these things opposite critical role. Because that happens on Thursday nights, right? <laughs> so, yes. here we are. But people know what they need to watch. People know what they need to watch. Uh, they should. <laughs> but I suspect more, more people are there than here. <laughs> right? Yep. Okay. Uh, so that is our thoughts on the quest to the Uncharted Lands. Up next in March, we will be reading Pawn of Prophecy by David Eddings. Until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. I'm on the wall.